Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. For the first time in a very long time, I would say to you, we're investing in ourselves. We are investing in America. We're investing in ourselves. And and that to me is, uh, I'm just glad to be part of it. Welcome to Moving the Needle, a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create new pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about addressing longstanding economic inequities. Christopher, I am honored to be with our guest today. Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development, Alejandra Castillo. I had the opportunity to work with Alejandra when she led the Federal Minority Business Development Agency and to spend a few days with her in Quito, Ecuador during the America's Competitiveness Exchange. She is truly someone who is moving the needle at a macro level in Washington while supporting local economies as well. Tell us a little bit about our time in D.C., Christopher. Yeah, Jonathan, talk about moving the needle across the policy board. Alejandra started working under the Senator Ted Kennedy on the Senate Labor and Resources Committee, then joined the Clinton administration, where she served as the senior policy analyst within the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. After supporting the nomination and confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, She joined the Department of Commerce in 2008 and was then appointed by President Obama to serve as the National Director of the Commerce Department's Minority Business Development Agency, known as MBDA. And now President Biden has appointed Assistant Secretary Castillo to lead the Economic Development Administration. What an incredible journey. That's three decades in D.C., working directly with three presidents and her passion for inclusive economic development all started when Alejandra was growing up in New York City. My father was a um, a small business owner, 
I will tell you that my most um, formative years in terms of shaping who I am and, and my passions was through that lens. Uh, looking at New York City and understanding the struggles of small businesses, but also trying to understand how does a city get to, to this place where there was so much divestment. You hear about the Bronx and how there were so many vacant buildings and, and crime and, and drugs. And so I understood that not only was there a formal economy that made the city tick, but there was also an informal economy. And both aspects needed one another. And that's how communities actually survived. Um, some of them thrived and others just barely survived. So that was where my curiosity came from. That curiosity has propelled Alejandra to keep asking the probing questions wherever she went. Her parents moved from New York to the Dominican Republic. Then she moved on to Portugal and back to New York, where she became the first in her family to graduate with a university degree. While she was in the Dominican Republic with her parents, it was right after Hurricane David ripped through the island. She became involved in her father's import-export business, and it was there that she started to understand the true power of entrepreneurial grit, but also what makes a community thrive. I grew up understanding all the different elements and stakeholders that must be engaged in order to make healthy place-based economic development. So it's not enough to complain and say, you know, I'm out. Uh, I'm not involved. We need we need civil society. We need universities, nonprofit organizations. We need philanthropy. We need community colleges. We need the unions. Everyone has to come into the fold and be able to own their role in this process. And I think that's what I learned at a very early age, that it took an entire community to move forward because conditions change. You know, you mentioned uh, a Hurricane 5 category. That was Hurricane David. And today, EDA actually does a lot of work in the natural disaster recovery space. It's not just sitting here in Washington, D.C. I enjoy being on the road because it's when you're on the road, Chris, Christopher, to your point, when you see the nuances, the true dilemmas that impact a community. Not everybody lives in a city. You know, we have rural America, Appalachia. We have places where an industry that flourished at a particular time just picked up and left and left behind many broken dreams. So how do we as EDA, as the Economic Development Administration, bring in, not just incentivize bringing in those individuals back to speaking about economic development, but also invite them with some investments to make sure that that infrastructure is there. Absolutely. Picking up on your journey and leading into EDA, connect that progression into the tremendous work we think EDA is doing right now. So I have to put it in context. You know, the Economic Development Administration is one of 13 different bureaus at the U.S. Department of Commerce. And I always, and and Jonathan, you know this, I always like to give a bit of a primer because people don't understand what the U.S. Department of Commerce does. But, you know, Commerce is the Census Bureau. Commerce is also NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Commerce is NTIA, National Telecommunication and Information Agency, which, by the way, under the infrastructure law, 
uh, NTIA has $48 billion to invest in broadband across the country. Commerce is also the National Institute of Standards and Technology. When we make things in the U.S., when we uh, fabricate things, when we manufacture things, we do it with precision. We do it with attention to uh, lasting. So NIST is a tremendous bureau. And now NIST is in charge of the CHIPS Act, which is bringing back the semiconducting, uh, semiconductor industry to the U.S. And, and really fostering it. So you go down the road on 13 different bureaus, and it's really amazing. Commerce touches everyone's lives every single day. And I can't forget to mention, obviously, MBDA, the Minority Business Development Agency, which I led during the Obama years. But when you talk about EDA, we are kind of the foundational bureau that undergirds all of these different investments. So it's exciting not just to be able to be part of EDA, but be part of EDA at this moment in time, particularly with the dollars that we were able to deploy under the American Rescue Plan, and now designing two new programs, the Tech Hubs and the Recompetes program. You know, Alejandro, I want to pick up on that and also test something, check something. Uh, This is a conversation Jonathan and I have uh, had independently. We've had it with our guests. But one of the things that it really seems has has started to happen, uh, especially within the context of, of this administration and where we are at this moment in time, in relation to the pandemic, is twofold. One is really thinking about things from a systemic perspective. So if we're going to really think about ways to move from, in the case of the pandemic, recovery to response to reimagination, that as we're thinking about the reimagination, we have to be thinking about reimagination at that systems level. And to your point, we need to make sure that all the stakeholders at the table They feel that they've been invited to the table and they see a role and responsibility to being able to be part of the solution. And it also uh, seems, and everything that the EDA has been coming out with and Commerce has been coming out with, is putting equity and inclusion at the center of it, which is really exciting. So it's thinking about systems-based change that is going to ideally transform the future of our economies in such a way that many more people are able to compete and participate. Thoughts on those two trends and where they're going and if that resonates? That resonates 100%. And that resonates because that is what President Biden has talked about. He's talked about economic development from the bottom up, middle out. He has anchored our work around equity and equity in 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 such a a, a large way, um, not just urban, suburban, but also rural, um, underserved communities, indigenous communities, coal communities. So you're absolutely right, Christopher. That message is what we're working towards, making sure that these investments are anchored around equity, and that they're anchored around making sure that. Everyone is part of this journey. That's why we not only talk about economic development, but we're also in tandem talking about workforce development. So it's not enough to talk about the industries of today and the industries of tomorrow if we are not also speaking about how do we prepare that workforce so that that workforce also is tied, linked, and weaved into the work that we're doing across the board. Absolutely. You know, uh, picking up on the line of inquiry that Christopher opened, 
the evolution of EDA. EDA is a great society program. Yet, it has evolved to be on the leading edge of broadly defined innovation. Now, many of the underserved communities where we hail from, still largely, the community infrastructure still largely looks like great society infrastructure. It's the Lord's work, if you will. But boy, that evolution hasn't hasn't happened in many communities. Yeah, so let me um let me pick up on the great society. You know, I'm I'm a graduate of the LBJ school. So um uh, <laughs> president LBJ is near and dear to my heart. Um spent many years yeah. in uh, uh several years in Austin, Texas at mm-hmm. the school that he created. Um and you're right. EDA is a product of the of the great society. Uh, back in 1965, and our evolution is is happening before our eyes. But I'll also tell you that for many years, EDA was a very small agency. Mm. We hovered around $400 million, with, which for the size and scope of our country was not much. We actually were at the bottom compared to o- other OECD countries. We were at the bottom in terms of economic development investment. Now you fast forward and the Biden administration has not just recognized EDA, but also invested in it. So I talked about hovering around a budget that was approximately $400 million. Under the CARES Act, EDA went from $400 million to $1.5 billion. And under the American Rescue Plan, it went from $1.5 to $3 billion. Now that's important, not just because of the amount of dollars. It's also important because of how we scaled. Right. And the way we scaled was making sure once again that our grants were designed in a way that communities could see themselves, that communities could apply, that it was anchored around equity, that we were actually investing in everything from water and sewage uh, pipelines to storm pipelines to business incubators to tech hubs. And that evolution is about not just having one lopsided approach, but actually looking at the entire spectrum. And when we have a chance, I know we're going to go into tech hubs and recompete, but I'll talk to you more about that. We want to make sure that we're covering the entire spectrum, that we're meeting communities where they're at. So if you're a community that needs larger investments because there has been neglect or disinvestment for so many decades, that's where EDA can come in. And also, you know, working with our sister agencies across the federal government. So much to talk about on that. You know, I want to sort of pick up on that a little bit. And the fact that it does feel, and I've had the opportunity to do a lot of this work across the country, some communities feel really well positioned to be able to compete for and invest in the federal relief dollars that are out there. And there are many, many, probably the majority of communities that don't have enough capacity, local capacity, to be able to navigate that. Uh, so they play it safe. They'll say, you know, we've got these dollars, but we don't really know how to invest them as strategically as we can. We're just going to put them into broadband. Recognizing the fact that there, as you pointed out earlier, there's going to be a whole tranche of new money coming down for broadband, but they're missing opportunities to really invest in some of that the necessary support resources for small businesses on the ground. We often talk about the fact that 
these entrepreneurial support organizations are often low capacity and, and low coordination. So these highly fragmented ecosystems, entrepreneurs don't know where to get access to the resources and relationships that they need to grow. As a result of that, they're not capital ready. They're not contract ready. So when the infrastructure dollars come down the pike, they can't compete for those contracts. So how do we overcome those barriers? You've got low capacity communities, you've got low capacity pockets of communities where some of the uh, uh, traditionally underconnected entrepreneurs uh, live and work. How do we really address some of those capacity questions? So Christopher, let me parse out the, the challenge before us. I'm gonna parse it out to speak about one, the ecosystem and two, the entrepreneurial cohort. So EDA invests in the ecosystem. So anything, as I mentioned before, a downtown area that needs, you know, uh, to be redeveloped, we can come in and work with the public entities, whether it's the mayor's office, the county uh, commissioner, or, or even the governor's office, to make sure that those investments are there to help that ecosystem for the businesses. Now, the, on the other side, we work with with um, uh, our sister agencies like SBA, like MBDA, like the Treasury Department, to make sure that not only are we uh, we deploying dollars to support, whether it's our own revolving loan fund or leveraging SBA's um, capacity building or MBDA. This is a kind of a whole of government approach, but you're absolutely right. The issue of capacity building is a big challenge. The way we try to solve for that is two, twofold. One is planning grants that we provide so that communities can develop their own plans, that they can be part of what's called the Comprehensive Economic Development Strategy, SEDS. Uh, we also work with the Economic Development Districts, EDDs. And all of these players, again, are there to support these communities. So I would invite your audience, if, if when in doubt, you know, give us a call, send us an email, and let us connect you to those resources. But the other thing that we did, Christopher, in, in recognizing capacity building is that we now have an economic development core, which is we are now investing in the next generation of economic development practitioners. And these are going to be fellows that we're going to deploy to different organizations across the country so that they can help these entities develop that capacity. Uh, and again, it's it's trying to make sure that we can address these different challenges in various ways. So I, I put out the invitation. Please look at our website, visit one of our six regional offices, and let us help you as well in terms of the um, capacity building. Yeah, just to build quickly on that and kick it over to Jonathan. But if you people want to go take a, take a look at it, it's the Economic Recovery Corps. There's 65 of them that are going to be distributed across the country, uh, and you've got some terrific organizations that are part of that, including my my friend Matt Dunn's uh, organization, yeah. the Center on, Center on Rural Innovation, uh, and, uh, and, and no, a number of others. So I think that's really important step to be able to figure out a way we can actually add human capacity into these communities to be able to help them think about how they can navigate this economic reimagination that we're talking about. And I really love that word, economic reimagination, because that's exactly what it is. We're not only talking about those industries of today, but looking at the, the horizon, what are the industries of tomorrow and how to make sure that we're not only investing in that ecosystem to help them flourish, but as I mentioned before, that workforce development component as well. Continuing this line, experience my own career. 
the absence, to Christopher's point, of organizations within underserved communities that have the capacity to actually receive support from EDA, local community stewards, local economic community stewards that tend to attract support from EDA and other leading sources, perhaps are empowered by poor demographics in their area. And those demographics never quite improve, but those incumbent organizations continue to be first in line to receive those investments never quite inures to the benefit of those other communities. And again, it's a, it's, large, it's a capacity issue. It's all kinds of challenges. And it's not easy. Practically, how do we get some of the unusual suspects in the um, supply chain, if you will? I'm so happy you asked that question. So when we designed, when, when EDA received the American Rescue Plan dollars, we had that issue top of mind. And the way we, we addressed it was we required partnerships. We required applicants to come in as a coalition and not just putting names on a piece of paper, but truly and authentically coming together as a coalition to design a plan that would then drive the proposal. And when we received these proposals, and by the way, for the Build Back Better Regional Challenge, we received 529 proposals. And for the Good Jobs Challenge, we received 509. It's, it was remarkable. Coalitions came together. They worked on, the, on their plans. They worked on their ideas. They came together as a team. And I will tell you that clearly we didn't have enough money to fund all, all of these applicants. But one important takeaway was that many of these applicants who did not succeed in terms of getting EDA money kept on going and they looked for other sources, not just at Commerce, maybe at Department of Energy, maybe at the Department of Transportation, maybe with a philanthropic community. So what we have seen is that the way we design our grants has incentivized the marketplace to work together to work collaboratively. And that's the same model we're going to use for the tech hubs. And it's actually by statute. A consor the, the statute requires consortiums and um, to recompete as well. So we are in, in large part able to incentivize or require communities to work together, especially underserved communities. Before we move into tech hubs and recompete, I want you to talk more about the importance of the SEDS and what it means to strategy development. Yeah, Christopher's fond of saying, I don't know where he got it, but it's a great saying. It said, many of our communities are program rich and systems poor. And strategy, without strategy, you can't get the systems. And so that's an incremental development that the SEDS can really play a huge role in. Yeah, and, I, and I'll add to that. I agree with you with the SEDS is that actually, uh, Alejandro, we've done some analysis on this for, from SEDS in the past. And I think, you know, they're now coming back up. Uh, a number of communities are now re-upping their SEDS and hopefully they're doing things differently. But SEDS have been traditionally done in a, in, from what I've seen in a black box. Like it's very unclear how they come about. Not very many people are invited to the table. 
uh, we've done an analysis of many of the SEDS plans across the country, and uh, very, very few of them actually put equity inclusion uh, explicitly stated as one of their target outcomes. Yeah. So we it feels like we might be at this inflection point, but I think truth is in the pudding. I mean, we're going to need to make sure that these SEDS are done in such a way that they bring all the people to the table they, they really make it as inclusive of, of a process as possible. And the outcomes are tailored to a, a set of agreed upon targets that everybody says, okay, we're now, we are truly moving the needle in terms of economic prosperity and inclusion in that work. The SEDS, you said they don't include a lot of people. Yes, they do. It's who they don't include. <laughs> they generally represent a huge swath of the local economic stewards, but the underrepresented, the underestimated, disconnected communities are often not an afterthought, but they're such an important roadmap. So yeah, I just wanted to finer point on that, that yeah, they include a lot of people, just not a lot of us. So I just want to make sure that um, I'm glad you all know about the SEDS. Uh, so SEDS, uh, Comprehensive Economic Development Strategy, SEDS. Um, Absolutely. It's one of the tools that we use at EDA. It's a very important tool. And you're, you're both right. It's about making sure that we are helping to incentivize the system's change. And what you're going to probably see um, in short order is um, new requirements, you know, new requirements that are going to include equity, that are going to include efforts on climate, that are going to include efforts on workforce development. This is the tool. Uh, and again, I, I believe in government. I believe there is a huge role for government because we can set the conditions and incentivize for communities to move to move that needle. And it is about how thoughtful we, we are in making sure that we embed certain priorities there. Because if not, you know, it, it could be just a a thought, but not not a necessity. And the SEDs are that important tool to help us organize, but also to be thoughtful of how we want to drive the future of our communities. And I think that that's pretty powerful. So uh, Jonathan, I hope you're going to be uh, pleasantly surprised to make sure that um, how we're how we're trying to make sure that communities that traditionally have not been part of the SEDs will be part of the SEDs. I think it's exciting. And it further evidence of the continued evolution of the agency and embedding in the tools the objectives we all want to, we may all want to see so i can congratulate you on that portion of your leadership let's take a break today's episode is brought to you by sherm our partners at sherm the society for human resource management have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. It's why Sherm made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. 
So you can learn more at sherm.org. That's S-H-R-M.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to moving the needle. Christopher, you want to pick up? Well, let's, I, I know we've been talking a bit about the tech hubs and the recompete, and so I would suggest that we go there. I think maybe just lay it out. Talk about you know what does success look like, and where do you think there might be some challenges uh, that we need to be conscious of at the community level? Yeah, so let me pick up tech hubs. Uh, it's the term of the moment, technology hubs, part of the Chips and Science Act, This is a concept that has been in the works for decades. Endless Frontier, at some point, it may have been called. Lots of amazing champions on the Hill. And finally, under the Chips and Science Act, uh, Tech Hub was passed and authorized at $10 billion. Now, I just want to be clear. It was authorized at $10 billion. It was appropriated uh, under the omnibus bill. Um, at half a billion dollars. So we like to say it's a down payment on tech hubs. And EDA is um, is fortunate to be the agency under which tech hubs uh, falls under. And we're vast at work. Currently, um, we have a request for information that's out on the street. It, the, it will close on March 16th. And I really ask uh, Christopher and, and Jonathan, please, please, please send us your best ideas, your best practices, your, your, your thoughts, your concerns, or any guidance that you want to provide uh, us as we design tech hubs. Now, the legislation actually requires for tech hub designation, tech hubs uh, strategy planning grants, and then tech hubs implementation. These are three phases of the Tech Hub process. It's going to require consortiums to come together. There are five mandatory elements and then 13 um, other elements as well. But think about how a university, community college, uh, nonprofit organization, unions, uh, workforce development um, entities, philanthropy coming together, thinking about what are the assets of their region. Now, we leave the definition of region up to the applicant. A region could be across counties, could be across across cities, could even be across states. Um, so we leave that definition to you all, and it's going to be exciting. Now, you ask, what's a successful tech hub? A successful tech hub is one where there is a, a strong consortium, a strong leader, um, that is going to be uh, diligent in moving this forward. But most importantly, making sure that there's an industry that can be developed or continue to be developed that is going to be of great economic importance as well as national security importance. Part of what Tech Hub is, is to address some of the, not only the industries of tomorrow, but issues of supply chain as well as issues of national security. Um, hence why it's in the Chips and Science Act, which is the legislation that I also created, the, the Chips Act of uh, Semiconductors. So there's a lot of moving pieces, but at the moment, I think there's a lot of great uh, interest across the board. Well, now with Recompetes. So Recompete is a pilot program, and Recompete is also an opportunity for um, EDA to engage highly distressed communities 
where there's a high prime age employment gap. And I mentioned that because that's the critical part of finding those areas where we can actually go in and be um, in some ways surgical, uh, to use that term, and go deep in terms of what are the uh, challenges that that community is facing? How do we in make these investments in a way that can actually jumpstart economic activity? Um, how do we tie them potentially to other investments that the, that the government is making? So Recompete and Tech Hub are all part of a, a broad spectrum of tools that EDA has to make interventions in communities across the country. Yeah, it makes me think a little bit of, um, so I've done some work outside of Pittsburgh, right? And in the case of Pittsburgh, obviously this is uh, steel legacy town, uh, especially within some of the surrounding communities like New Kensington and Beaver Falls and others, that they've got this uh, legacy manufacturing business. Now, what they're working towards, which I find to be really interesting, which I think connects the dots on a couple of these things, both tech hubs and Recompete, is thinking about these are communities that saw a significant economic decline with uh, essentially the the disappearance of the, the steel industry and the related uh, manufacturing that came along with that. But you have all these legacy manufacturing groups that are now trying to transition to the digital age and creating sort of these advanced manufacturing centers that builds on the legacy, but looking forward to the necessary workforce skills the necessary technology infrastructure to be able to allow for that type of digitization. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about here? You've got a combination between distressed communities, reimagining what's possible, leveraging existing assets, introducing new technologies with the respective partners to try to transition into 21st century uh, skills and, and jobs. That's a great example, Christopher. And and again, um, that area of the of Pittsburgh was also one of our Build Back Better awardees in robotics, uh, in large part because of the work that um, Carnegie Mellon is doing. Carnegie so Mellon, yeah. you, you're, you're absolutely right. It's looking at one legacy industries that may have may still have a presence there, but need to evolve or move into a different um, phase of the of the industry, or new industries that are looking for um, some some funding as well as some momentum to jumpstart. Pittsburgh is is a great example. I'll also talk about Wichita, Kansas, which is also one of our Build Back Better awardees, a legacy industry in the aerospace. They too are leveraging their their universities, their community colleges, their workforce development to take uh, the next evolution uh, of aerospace. Um, so there's a lot of great examples, but I will tell you again, there are so many parts across the country, and we like to say that Tech Hub is truly democratizing technology and innovation so that it just doesn't live on the coast um, because we need to make sure that in middle America, where there's a lot of technology and innovation happening, that we too can drive some key investments in those areas across, um, you know, in, in areas in the middle of, of the U.S. You've been in this game for a long time and doing excellent work. What would you say in your experience, what have you observed about some of the communities that were able to transition better 
into the broadly defined new economy and some that have struggled. What might have been present, vision, leadership, resources, it's just from your own experience? I will tell you, leadership is, is key. You know, a visionary leader that is in the throes of things day in and day out, uh, having a strategy that is also futuristic, relationships working across the board with the universities, with so many different players. I have seen just incredible things happening in communities. I'll give you an example. You know, in the Fresno uh, area, former mayor um, Ashley Swearingen had a vision. Um, she's no longer mayor, um, but she's still part of the community foundation. She leads the community foundation there. And she had a bold vision of agrotech. And they received one of our Build Back Better. Um, uh, they were one of our Build Back Better awardees. And again, looking at technology innovation in the agriculture industry, not to displace workers, but actually to help them be safer, be more productive, and to actually diversify a bit um, uh, the industry as well. So I've seen um, how leadership is is a key part, but also being able to build coalitions to to be mission-driven, uh, put the ego aside and just focus on what that mission is. And and I've seen so many amazing examples of that uh, across the country. You know, one quick thing I will say is that I do think that one of the things that we are missing right now in our the education of the next generation of public leaders, and you mentioned going to uh, you know the LBJ school, I also have a master's in public policy, but I find that, to go back to Jonathan's point, programs rich, systems poor, we are not doing a good job training next generation systems leaders, people who are really thinking at that systems level and can take that type of leadership within community and understand how to build broad-based coalitions, how to be boundary-spanning leaders, having uh, be able to set a table and work with others to try to advance that that work in meaningful ways. I still, we're missing, we're missing that. Uh, I think it's going to take a generation, but, you know, in as much as we can bang the drum on actually preparing next generation systems leaders, I think it's going to be critical if we're really going to see this kind of sustained transformation. And I'll be one of those to bang the drums with you because you're absolutely right. Um, particularly at this moment in time, you know, we, we, we want to make sure that we inspire the next generation of economic development practitioners. Um, so EDA is opening uh, many opportunities for a new cadre of, of young folks to come into this space because it's important. But again, if I can draw your attention to this particular moment in time when we talk about systems, you know, it's no accident that there's $48 billion for broadband because we know, and the pandemic taught us that and, and showed us that, that without the broadband, you can't do telemedicine or e-commerce or or education. Um, so unless we have that foundational investment in broadband, so much of the 21st century economic landscape just will not happen. But we also know that we're talking to Department of Energy and the Department of Transportation on electric vehicle charging stations. We're investing in the next mobility industry out of Detroit. We're looking at all of this very holistically, but also from a systems perspective of how does this all work? What's the sequencing 
of investments and how do you stack them up as well? How do you concentrate dollars in a particular area and what happens to those areas that are not receiving those dollars? So we're looking at the entire country with a very holistic perspective because this is a once in a generation moment of true public dollars transforming our economy. And it's very exciting. It's very exciting. I, I just want people to feel how exciting it is because for the first time in a very long time, I would say to you, we're investing in ourselves. We are investing in America. We're investing in ourselves. And, and that to me is, uh, I'm just glad to be part of it. Very good. Very good. My, my. Um, what a way to wrap up. Um, let's move to a lighter subject. Two lighter subjects. What are you reading these days? I will tell you, you know, I just went to um, Panama over the, the holidays, and I'm a big fan of David McCullough as a historian. I don't know if mm -hmm. you've ever read um, some of his books, uh, particularly on the Brooklyn Bridge, on um, Truman. He's, he's just, just a, an amazing historian. The Panama Canal. He did a great piece in the Panama Canal. Well, that's exactly what I'm still, I still haven't finished it, but it's the path between the seas, which is about the Panama Canal. And I, I got to tell you, it's remarkable. When we talk about technology and innovation, the French uh, in, it had great interest in the Panama Canal because they had just completed the Suez Canal, but it was the Americans and, and how we made that such an engineering feat and, and an environmental feat as well. So that's exciting to me. Um, um, I'm reading bits and pieces because sometimes I'm just exhausted, but um, but it's a it's a wonderful um, story of how American ingenuity and American innovation made it all possible. An American will. That's right. An American <laughs> yes. will. Absolutely. <laughs> Talk about persistence. And the same thing, you yeah. know, you, you mentioned the, the piece on the Brooklyn Bridge, but that's also another uh, wonderful piece that he did about the Brooklyn Bridge and, and some of the remarkable and the story about uh, ultimately the bridge's architect's wife really carrying that over the finish line in terms of making that, that possible. Uh, and then what's your, uh, what are some of the things that you love to listen to when you're trying to relax on wine? And is it with like, you know, a glass of wine making dinner and what, what, what helps you unwind? Um, I will tell you, I love all types of music, um, from classical to jazz to merengue and reggaeton. It all depends. Uh, music is my escape, um, but also dancing is my escape. So something that you may not know, I'm, I'm a bit of a flamenco dancer, so I'm a closet dancer, and it's where I... Um, it's it's flamenco. If you know anything about flamenco, it's about the passion and the will of the dance and the music and the singing and the castanets and everything that goes with it. So that's a, that's a bit of my escape. Hopefully you have a big closet that you're doing that flamenco in. Flamenco needs some movement, <laughs> places to move. <laughs> I have a three-car garage, so I use it, I use it well. <laughs> Alejandro. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, a wealth of knowledge, experience, and vision, and actually with the ability, wherewithal, to implement that vision. Thank you for joining us, sharing more about EDA and your personal background as well. We truly appreciate it. Christopher? I just wanted to echo my thanks, Alejandro. This has been a, just a terrific conversation. I hope people come away with it. 
inspired feeling that kind of energy you're talking about, I would agree. We're at this once in a generation opportunity right now. And it's great to have you in the leadership, helping to think about some of that systems change. And I think what we're going to find is that the seeds that you're planting today are going to you know, grow over generations and I think make a real impact. So thank you for your service and thank you for joining us. I, I thank you both, but I will have to say this can't happen if, if it weren't for an amazing, amazing team of professionals and career civil servants who make this all possible at EDA. So I just, um, I just stand on their shoulders because they are truly the people who make the magic happen. That was Alejandra Castile with the Economic Development Administration. Such a privilege to have her join the conversation. Thanks so much for listening to Moving the Needle. If what you heard resonates with your mission, do something about it. Leaving a rating and review and sharing our show with your network is greatly appreciated. But what we really want is for you to get involved and find a way to move the needle in your community. Moving the Needle is hosted by me, Jonathan Hollifield, and Christopher Gergen. Editing and production by Earfluence. Music from Bart Matthews. And cover art from Devin Lewis Designs. We are also particularly grateful for our sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. We hope each episode introduces you to leading edge change makers, informs you about what's possible, and inspires you to action. So get out there and do some needle moving shit. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. Although the economic narrative of the 20th century in many ways served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot meet the needs of the 21st century. Today, we need all hands on deck, particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities. Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's the future economy and inclusive competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. 
In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. We had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.